0: Hi, I'm Shane Safir.
1: And I'm Alcine Mumby. And this is Street Data Pod, where we dream about next generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have
0: conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. Hi, pod friends. Today, we are joined by two of my friends, colleagues, and fearless leaders from Abbotsford, British Columbia. Perry Smith is the assistant superintendent in the Abbotsford School District. Perry has worked in this district his entire career and has experience as an Indigenous support worker, grade one teacher, Indigenous education helping teacher, district principal of Indigenous education, and director of instruction in the curriculum department. Welcome, Perry. Thank you so much. Kevin Godin has been the superintendent of schools for the Abbotsford School District since July 2011, supporting some 20,000 students and 2,200 employees. Kevin is committed to student success, working collaboratively with district staff and community partners to make his school district the best it can be. He considers himself an equity champion, and he is committed to interrogating disrupting practices while still considering himself a teacher at heart. In my book, Kevin is a visionary and one of the greatest leaders I have gotten to work with and meet. Welcome to the show, Kevin Godden. Absolutely. Thank you all for being with us today, and I'm excited about this conversation. So we're gonna be having a conversation largely rooted in chapter four of the book, this concept of the equity transformation cycle. And what does it look like to move at a systems level through a process of transformation that really starts with listening? right? That's rooted in deep listening at the margins of our system. And that is maybe slower than a lot of the continuous improvement kind of dogma out there. (laughs) The set a goal, pursue it, you know, seek linear change. And you all have been teachers to me in so many ways on this journey of street data and, and change kind of and transformation. So we always like to start with story. If I can invite you to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about who you are And just like, what's on your heart today as we begin the third pandemic school year? You want to start, Kevin?
2: Delighted to be here, first of all, and and really looking forward to the conversation. I wrote in in my welcome back letter to our staff and parents that this is my 35th year in education and 12th year as a superintendent. And without fail, I'll say, you know, the... The joy, anticipation, expectation of the first days of school is here now, as it was in 1987 when I started teaching in Peace River South at Devereaux Elementary School with my grade six, seven class. It's what stays on my heart, you know, during that first week of school, I get a chance every, every year and it's my practice to get out there and just sit and look. Mm. And, and connect with people about the excitement of, of being back in school. And I think this year is just especially so just given what we've gone through. So I'm I'm the proud superintendent of this school district, but I carry a teacher's heart with me wherever I go.
0: I love that. Teacher's heart. Perry, how about you? Tell us who you are and what's on your heart as we start the school year.
3: Well, my name is Perry Smith, and my Indigenous name is Kwanithwa, and it comes from the Okanagan First Nation and is my... Uh, great-great-grandfather and great-grandfather's name and given to me by my great-aunt Carrie Allison, so I'm very proud to have that. I come from the Bonaparte First Nation in Cache Creek, British Columbia, but grew up in Abbotsford, went to school in Abbotsford, graduated from Rick Hansen Secondary School when it was a brand Mm. new school. I still go there and drive by there and think of it as this brand new building, despite the fact that it's, you know, nearing 30 years old and and being renovated. (laughs) I'm one of the uh, proud assistant superintendents in the school district, Mm -hmm. having worked here for just about 25 years, starting off as an educational assistant and a teacher and then a vice principal and principal and director of curriculum, and now working and teaching and learning as an assistant superintendent, and just so excited about the opportunities that we have as we've been building momentum with our structures and initiatives, and now being able to to get into schools uh, and fully engage with staff and students is just so exciting to me.
1: So first question is, Street Data posits that story is the most important data in the building and that story orientation is foundation to our leading for equity. So can you share an early experience of schooling connected to your identity or how you see yourself in the world that continues to shape the work you lead
2: today? I wasn't born in this country. Our family emigrated to Canada when I was 12. And so I want you to picture, you know, young Jamaican boy (laughs) coming to Canada in the month of February. No.
1: Mm -mm.
2: (laughs) Trying to figure out What have I gotten myself into, right? What is my mom thinking? And But I have to tell you, that first day of school will stay with me forever. uh, In part because that was the first time somebody used the N-word on me, right? Imagine 12 years of my life, never had it before, and the first day, and it was over you know, believe it or not, basketball, right? And I remember the name of the person. I remember all of it well. And of course, what transpired next, of course, is, you know, a fight. I grew up in a single parent family home. And so, you know, my mother is my biggest hero. She's passed away now, but just I joke that, you know, we, we revered her later, but when, when I was 12, I was afraid of her <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> in a good way. Right. And, and so I, I recall having to go home and face up to her about first day of school, getting into this melee. And, you know, she was just amazing after she kind of found out what it was about and kind of told me that, you know what, you're going to be faced with this for the rest of your life. And you're not going to fight your way through this. That's not who you are. You're going to have to be better. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, I only look back at these things in retrospect, because what she did was she went and bought me a basketball. She goes, here is your basketball. You can play. And so you don't know me that well yet, but I'm pretty (laughs) single-minded. And so it was one of those things where I decided that I was going to be the best. I was going to be it. And that stinking basketball was with me wherever I went. It just helped to shape, you know, the experiences that I later had. It was the reason why I I went on to play basketball later at the university level. It was part of who I, you know, helped to shape me. And it came out of this awful incident that stayed with me and shaped how I looked at people around me, how I looked at the school experience, how how I, you know, dealt with racism, all of it. It was a significant event in my school experience and just, you know, with the help of my mother, reminded me that I was going to have to be better. Mm -hmm. Without me knowing it at the time, part of the defining moment in the first day of school in a new country for me.
1: Thank you for sharing that and for sharing the beautiful story about your mom helping to guide you through that um we are grateful for her wisdom and her her guidance and getting you that basketball i feel you (laughs) listen stop messing with jamaican moms and their kids my mom was jamaican too like listen so perry i'm really curious is there a story connected to your identity that shapes how you continue to work and lead today
3: yeah, you know, when I was reflecting on, on the question and listening to Kevin, and, and Kevin and I have had the conversation about our moms, where, I, you know, I think they're related somehow. We grew up with, with similar mothers in many respects, but, but thinking about opportunities for me to see my identity in school was pretty rare. As you know, I'm pretty proud of the fact that indigenous culture is, is prevalent in our schools now, but as, as a kid, 35, 40 years ago, you just didn't talk about being Indigenous and and you didn't make a big deal out of it because there were a lot of stereotypes and a lot of stories about what it meant to be Indigenous. My strongest memory of being in elementary school was was an opportunity to to wear something that was from your home and, and who you were and me telling my mom that I wanted to wear a pair of moccasins that I had. You know, we didn't have a lot of traditional clothes when I was growing up. That's something that is a big part of our life now, in uh, going to powwows and doing cultural things. But but when I was a kid, a pair of moccasins was really all I had. Mm. And saying that I wanted to wear those to school, and remembering my mom trying to talk me out of it. She said, "Are you sure you want to wear those to school? You know, people might make fun of you, mm. or, or or they they might say something that you don't like." And I'm not as single-minded as Kevin, (laughs) but I've been accused of being stubborn. And I just said, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to wear them. And I don't remember anybody saying anything, but I just remember that conversation from my mom of, you know, uh, you just got to be careful. Like, do you really want to stick your neck out and and be different? You know, growing up for me in Abbotsford, not a lot of Indigenous people visible in in the community at that time. and, And you just you just didn't want to stick out. You just tried to blend in. So that that was my my first memory.
0: Thank you, Perry. What a what a gift both of those stories. I'm just Holding, holding both of those stories with so much tenderness and care. And I'm resonating deeply with both of your moms and thinking about how as moms, we just carry our babies' hearts with us every moment, right? And have to navigate so much fear and anxiety about how our children, you know, are going to be received in the world. It's a lot. So I love bringing them into the bringing your moms into the conversation with us. So Perry, first of all, congratulations on your appointment as assistant superintendent. Chapter four of Street Data, each each chapter has a core principle, and the guiding principle in chapter four is to seek root causes over quick fixes, which I think in the work that you all have been engaged with uh, deeper learning doesn't around and feels very synergistic to a what you've been doing. So Perry, would love for you to talk about sort of an equity center challenge that you're facing as you walk into this new role and what it might look like to approach that challenge through this principle of seeking root causes over over quick fixes.
3: Yeah, I, I love this question as it resonates with a lot of, of what we're working on right now. And for about 18 years in, in my career, I worked in the Indigenous Education Department, really happy now to be Working back with the Indigenous Department and, and you know working with our district principal and, and district vice principal of Indigenous education to be a sponsor of their work now as they join our you know teaching and learning department. It really is the, the work of this problem of practice that I that I wrestle with is how do we increase the the capacity and skill and will and and understanding of teachers to embed indigenous worldviews and perspectives throughout the educational experience of each student, Mm. not just our Indigenous students. When you look at education in Canada and the work that's being done through the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the the calls to action that call on us to put Indigenous worldviews and perspectives at the forefront of of learning and embed it throughout our students' learning. Yes. In addition to our beautiful redesigned curriculum, that we've had now for several years that, that has Indigenous content and competencies in, in every subject area, in every grade, which is such a, an amazing opportunity for all students in our district, in the province, to learn about Indigenous people and learn the history of Indigenous people in Canada and, and our relationship with the First People. As well as the current contexts and cultures and understandings of Indigenous people, but for Indigenous students to see themselves in their learning, which goes back to that first story that came to me about, you know, not really seeing Indigenous people in my learning. and reflecting on when did I learn about Indigenous people. And it wasn't until high school when we learned about the French Indian Wars and Indigenous people from the East Coast and not really understanding that we had Indigenous people in in Abbotsford. Uh, Not really understanding that until I went to university, uh, that, that we have Indigenous communities and such a rich history here in our community. You know, that work of ensuring that the voices and cultures of our community are present in the learning of our students is so important. A great aspect of the work we're doing in our curriculum department in partnership with Indigenous education is working with teachers to understand the history, to understand culture in the present, not as a historical concept, because Indigenous culture isn't historical it's present. Yeah. Indigenous people are here and, and we practice culture and understanding how that can be incorporated into into the classroom is so important and such a big job you know th- that's the work that, that I find so rewarding and exciting to see how we can we can build that in our schools.
0: so much for sharing that with us it makes me really excited to keep partnering with you all this year and get to learn alongside you
1: yeah i'm curious on the second part what would it not look like you know please please don't give all the babies moccasins we're not gonna do that (laughs) so what would it not look like to do this work
3: yeah what it wouldn't look like is us buying a bunch of textbooks that teachers would say okay well turn to page 34 In your indigenous learning textbook, and we're going to read about the Stalo people, right? And I understand the allure of having analog text to support learning because, you know, it's something that's tangible, it's something that I have, and it's something I can refer to. And I think one of the challenges of teaching and learning indigenous culture, particularly if you're not an indigenous person, is the story and the holistic nature and the nuances of culture that that are a part of of teaching that in the classroom. And we can't always have an indigenous person in every classroom to support that learning. So then, you know, the the question is, how, how do we provide resources to or support teachers with resources that are relevant and rich and meaningful that support that learning in a, in a culturally appropriate and, and responsive way. So that teachers are confident in you know facilitating that learning with students and we know that students are able to understand and appreciate and build their competencies while learning about Indigenous people. Right.
1: so much for following up with that answer because that is what a lot of in the states we want to buy that curriculum package and just try to teach it to fidelity and we forget that some of the ways in which learning has to happen well not some of the ways like kids got to be doing they have to be doing they have to be immersed they have to see themselves in the curriculum, but also, like, be in community with each other and with other folks who are also, like, living it, breathing it, sharing the stories. So, yeah, we can have an Indigenous person in every classroom, because if you think the classroom is not just the four walls, then you go out into the community, right? And if you listen, if you listen... (laughs) You'll hear that's what our young people are asking for, too, right? Like they just they want to they want to learn outside of the confines that the confines that we we put on there. And so, Kevin, in your role as a superintendent, how has the core stance of deep listening served you? And then feel free to share anything, um, a story around systems change or a dilemma and how slowing down and listening to story helps you seek root causes over quick fixes.
2: One of the places I started was, um, I mean it sincerely, that I I carry the heart of a teacher with me. Those were, you know, just the most wonderful experiences that I had, and and I never want to let go of them. And so, you know, for me, the days that bring me the most joy in my job is when I am, you know, notwithstanding the joy of being in Perry's (laughs) company and being with the team and doing all the work that we do, it's when I'm actually out in the school, in the schools, and engaging with our principals, vice principals, teachers, and with kids, and and so I set a pretty, I'll say, strict uh, schedule for myself around the kind of interactions that I want to have as a part of my own experience. So I am not separated from that work that a brings me joy, but but also gives me a, a deeper understanding and pulse of the life. the district and the work that we're trying to accomplish so i i visit every school every year in a very focused way i spend significant time with each principal i meet with the staff or our representatives of staff if they want to at every building uh when i do that and i meet with students at all of our high schools and so you know it's part of kind of who i am but i think it also Part of that is, is about modeling uh, the kind of deep listening that we want, but it also fills my bucket in terms of the kind of interaction that I have with our schools. And so, you know, I have a wonderful assistant who, who makes sure that those experiences uh, fill my week. And that's part of how I, what I use to kind of calibrate the other part of the job, which is you know working with the school board, working with my team, uh, around you know the kind of planning that we do and the kind of experiences that we want for our leader. But I'll, I'll throw an example at you though. Uh, Abbotsford is uh, has has had a history, I'll say, of some you know gang engagement. And if you don't know a lot about Abbotsford, it is a uh, is is interesting. It's one of the more diverse. Uh, communities uh, in the country, really, um, uh, and and there is a sizable South Asian population here. And one of the things that you know this community off and on has been beset with is you know what we've come to call gang violence, right? That that exists in you know all l- large centers, but it's one of the concerns that we've had here. And it would be easy for us in trying to understand and try to create a response about. Uh, you know, gang life and all of the all of the you know the scourge that comes with that, uh, by looking at you know high level incidences of you name the kind of behaviors that we that we know are problematic around drugs and and, and violence, uh, without talking to young people and families about what their experiences mm. are, and you know I had a wonderful relationship with the police chief here. And, and while we certainly didn't dispel all of the, you know, I'll say the tried and tested approaches that we have around, you know, gang suppression and, and, and all those types of things, one of the things I appreciated about him was his unorthodoxy in going out to the people and talking with them. Go figure, right? And so the two of us, and, and this, this goes back a few years because he's now retired, we would just go on tour and we would visit the temples. We would talk with families. We would talk with community members. And it was just an opportunity for us to do this, ask a few pointed questions, and just listen in. Right. And, you know, we got lots of advice to people about how to continue to do that and doing that in a meaningful way. But it just had a huge impact in terms of the approaches that we all took as a consequence of that, but also the perspective of... The community who at one point felt uh, are, you know, that I hope you guys aren't making this to be about the South Asian community because, you know, we're the ones who are are being targeted and being, you know, gang involved. And so it was it was being in that space of of really getting down and listening to people that kind of brought us some some novel and interesting ways of looking at it, but also built trust with the community as we, as we went along. So, you know, I'll share that with you as an example. And, you know, it's part of the path of some of the success that we've had, you know, building community and, you know, addressing the problem that as, as it was initially framed for us.
1: Right the listening. What you didn't see, viewers, is that when he went a little silent, he was zipping his lips. Him and the police chief just went quiet and listened to the people. So thank you for that really beautiful, concrete answer.
0: Thank you for sharing that. So Perry, kind of building on what Kevin just gave a beautiful example, and I want to give you an opportunity to answer a similar question. So in chapter four, uh, we talk about the equity transformation cycle and this idea of beginning always with listening at the margins, then really training ourselves to slow down to uncover those root causes and to uncover the hidden stories that are in our classrooms and buildings and communities so that we can then reimagine what we're doing, hopefully in partnership with the folks we've been listening to, right? Not doing to, but doing with. Not even doing for, but doing with and um, ultimately moving with courage, which you spoke to earlier. So I want to just invite you to share if there's a way you've seen, at any level of the system, a teacher, a principal, or a district leader kind of move through that journey of listen, uncover, and reimagine in a way that really impacted student experience.
3: Reflecting on that question made me think of a teacher that's in or was in one of our secondary schools, and, and she's now moved on to another district, but took the opportunity to, you know, pitch to her school, what if we taught an Indigenous Studies class, integration with an English class, and had a a cohort of kids that we kept for, you know, two blocks in a row in a secondary school, and we built a community of kids, and taught them together, integrating two sets of course outcomes together, so that, you know, we're not just learning about you know, the content of uh, Indigenous social studies class, but we're also looking at Indigenous literature and and critically and creatively thinking about that and communicating about it. So, you know, that was a, a cool idea in itself and had become a successful class, but I had the opportunity to go in and sit in that class as the teacher invited me to come as an Indigenous adult that, you know, had grown up in Abbotsford and went to school and is now, you know working in the school district and and to have the students ask me some questions about you know what was it like being a, an indigenous person in school and and you know what, what challenges do i have now and you know far more powerful than anything i could have said was the experience of sitting in a circle with those students and seeing the protocols that they developed together and seeing the positionality of the teachers in the class in that uh, you could walk into that class and see that students were deeply engaged in questions that they were developing and not really see where the teacher is. Uh, You know, see people talking and, you know, debating and conversing, but, but, you know, you have to kind of look around and, and decide if you didn't know the teacher, which one The teacher was because you know they had positioned themselves alongside rather than up in front what was also really evident in that circle is that those students had some pretty strong voice in the direction of the class we encourage you know our our teachers to have really firm year and unit plans set up for the year but what i loved about that classroom is she had built those plans but held them pretty lightly in her hands and that was the experience that uh, she and her teaching partner created was this co-constructed, co-taught learning experience in the classroom where, where students had not just agency, but they had power. It was just such a, a neat way to see how teachers have gotten out of the way to allow teachers to, to drive their learning.
0: Wow, just wow. Thank you for taking us inside that classroom. It's a beautiful example of a one-inch window, which is a metaphor from Anne Lamott's work that we're trying to use in this pod just to go really local and to study what happens in particular times and spaces. So I'm just going to pull out a couple things from your story and then pass it to Alcine. This image of teachers really sharing power, as you said, and a lot of that being about whose voice is in the room, right? And so in Chapter 5, which will be the focus of our next podcast, the idea of teachers talking less (laughs) – Smiley more, creating an environment that's really rooted in the student's voice. The idea that you've taught me so much about as a colleague, Perry, of circling up, right, the structure of the circle and all the layers of meaning and significance and indigenous epistemology that's embedded in the circle. And then lastly, the, the idea of questions over answers, right? And the teacher's really valuing not just generating their own questions, but co-generating questions with students so that that buy-in is really immeasurable. There's no test that you can measure that with, but you can feel it, you felt it. you re- you could describe it so palpably when you talked about walking into that room. So thank you for that.
1: I'll see. So Kevin, I'm gonna I'm gonna have you answer this question first, right? You are about to launch the next chapter in your career. So what advice do you have for educators, whether they're teachers or they're district leaders or all of that, who are listening and wanting to move through this process of centering voices from the margins and building solutions with folks? What advice, like one or two pieces of advice would you give us? And then I'm going to come to you, Perry, too. So get your get your answer in your brain.
2: So... What I will call affectionately leading like a teacher is what I will, I will surface, which is really around symmetry, which is, you know, adult and student learning is, is symmetrical. We create experiences that we want for kids, and the adults should have similar kinds of uh, experiences to kind of create a pathway for students. And and so, you know, if you, you think about the the most wonderful, wisest, caring, nurturing, skilled, compassionate... Teacher, that you had and and think about the things that that teacher did so that here you are still speaking about her. Mm. She created space for you, had a level of respect for you as a contributor, as a learner. So part of the thing that I have come to buy into is that, you know, our leaders will do and be that which the wisest, most judicious, kind, and compassionate teachers are. That's what our leaders uh, need to be. And so when I say lead like a teacher, I'm going to ask you to think about the teacher that touched your heart, but go mm-hmm. deeper past that and uh, past the experiences and the feelings that you have and take a look at the skills, the practices, the actions that those were the, the teacher was engaged in. And I would postulate that... Our leaders need to be thus because I think in the same way that you know if you were to you know 20 years from now speak to a teacher about the principal who helped to create the space For her as a learner and as a doer and to try things on, uh, you know, she might say, well, that principal did this, this and this. And you know what? It's remarkably consistent to what my teacher did for me. And so that's one thing I would I would offer. I think sometimes when we get into positions like like mine and and Perry, I think we lose we lose our way a little bit. Right. (laughs) And that's why I say I want to keep the heart of a teacher because that's what got me here. And I still believe that that is the thing that will help us uh, do this work at a systemic level is to have our leaders and our teachers engage in those practices, mindsets, and create those kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. So that would be one thought that I would I would share, I'll see.
1: First of all, I'm glad you think that was only 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for that answer. That just warmed my entire heart and body. Perry, what, would, what advice would you give folks who are trying to move through this?
3: Well, one of the things that I'm really contemplating as of late is a word that we have a lot in our, you know, our visions and our missions and our goals. And when we talk about profiles of students is success how do we measure success and, and what does success look like and envisioning wh- what will a student have achieved when they're successful and it's something as I think about you know as Kevin said we're a very diverse school district and families come from diverse cultures and uh, speak a multitude of languages and have different perspectives on the world and different experiences with education. What I'm continuing to ponder and work toward is to understand, you know, how do we build a profile for success? And that's one of the things we discuss in the province and in our school district is the, the profile of a graduate. What are the things that we want each student to be able to do as they transition from secondary school into their next chapter? Is, you know, what are the competencies that we want them to have? You know, considering how do we include the worldviews understandings of different cultures in that definition of a success profile so that each student as they move through our system can see that milestone from their own perspective and have it also align with a collective vision for learning. It's a complex vision that really starts to individualize and personalize learning for students that as we move forward, I, I think we're going to, well, I'm gonna use the word successful at,
1: What I heard you say is, if you're listening, then if you want to start to do this work, you have to listen to the plural, varied, multiple ways that your community considers success. It is not just the way you as an educator might have maneuvered through that system. And therefore, that's why we think success is if you sit up straight and if you can write a a five paragraph essay very well with X amount of semicolons or blah, 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 right? Like there are multiple ways. And if you ask your people, you will be able to then start to orient your learning systems around that success.
0: And then you get partnership. All right, y'all, we're going to head into our lightning round. We want to make sure to get you out on time. I could talk to the two of you forever, but want to honor your time as busy system leaders. So we'll go back and forth on the lightning round, and the invitation is to answer from the gut, unfiltered, concisely if you can, (laughs) just kind of what comes to mind. So we'll start with Kevin. You are called to listen deeply to somebody, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do?
2: The first thing I do is to be curious about that. You know, I'll go back a moment ago to about being single-minded, but, you know, there are downsides to that sometimes because at the end of the day, I want to leave that interaction with some forward action. And I don't think matching defensiveness or aggression is going to help. And so to me, uh, one of the things I'm working on is to be curious about that perspective and to ask about more about that perspective and where it comes from.
0: Love it. Harry, same question. You're called to listen deeply to someone. What they have to say is triggering to you. What's the first thing you do? You know,
3: I think it's challenging my own personal biases. And sometimes that bias, I think, can be that my perspective is the way. And reminding myself that there are multiple ways to look at a situation. And there is a possibility that both those ways are right. So what is one
1: one practice or a way of being that keeps you grounded in the face of resistance and oppression. I
3: think it's, it's my why. You know, one, one of the things we've worked on over the last few years, and, and, and I think it was catalyzed by our work with the Deeper Learning Dozen is being grounded in our why. Why is it that I'm doing this work, spending 35 years of my life dedicated to learning? and understanding that why is what uh, cements me in my purpose and, and keeps me on course.
2: I captured the subtle hint So about lightning round. So I'm gonna echo what Perry said. It's clarity of purpose for me. I carry that with me wherever I go and I would agree with him. That's the thing that gets me through.
0: What is one form of street data that you believe every educator should gather, Kevin?
2: Spend time with students and get a picture of their experiences and listen to it. Perry. I learned from my wife,
3: who's a great educator, who learns the stories of her kids and builds relationships through their story. And it's by learning about who they are and being truly interested in that.
0: Starting with Kevin, what is one essential feature of your radical vision for a classroom?
2: I would say it's the positionality mindset of the teacher.
0: Love that. Perry? I think it's students
3: being able to see themselves in the classroom.
1: So this question is about impact. So complete this statement, a great learning experience will, what's the impact? Kevin?
2: Shape me for a lifetime.
0: Love that. Perry.
3: Push me just beyond my skill level.
0: I am really rooted in gratitude right now for the connection to the two of you, to the three of you, including Alcine, for the just the ability to have a conversation like this and to trust ourselves to say what needs to be said and to get to learn from you all yet again, which I continue to do every year. So Thank you for joining us today, and I look forward to seeing you, I hope, in the year that I'll be living up here.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for the work that you're doing in helping to shape us, you know, shape and support the lives of our, of our children. So it's been, it's been really wonderful, and I look forward to more of it. I honor that. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Kevin and Perry, for such a wonderful conversation. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at kevingarden one and you can follow Perry on Twitter at underscore PerrySmith. Be sure to check out Perry's children's book, Pow Wow Dancing
0: with Family, at StrongNations.com. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera, my former student, for our theme music. If you want to learn more about street data and
1: get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember we can't be articulate all of the time.
2: Take
1: three.